Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. If you are using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find Romans 12, 1 on page 947. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This morning is our fifth and final sermon in a series that we started a few weeks ago on the pillars of Reformed theology. At the end of October, we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And we celebrate the Protestant Reformation because it was in and through the Reformation that God used men like Luther and Calvin and, and Zwingli and many others to restore to his church the true gospel of Jesus Christ. In the years and even the centuries prior to the Reformation, the, the pure gospel of God had been polluted with all sorts of man-made religion. But by returning to the scriptures, by, by returning to the, the, the faith once handed down by the apostles, as the final authority in all questions of faith and practice, the reformers rediscovered the true gospel and began to proclaim it again clearly and, and boldly, sometimes even at the cost of their own lives. And we here this morning, really all evangelicals throughout the world, are the beneficiaries of their sacrifice. We know and cherish the gospel today because of the sacral work of the Reformation so many years ago. And that is why we, we have taken the last few weeks to, to study the, the pillars of that gospel, the, the pillars that came to be summarized in what we refer to as the five solas of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solus Christus, and Soli Deo Gloria. Even if you don't know Latin, you may know the translation of those familiar phrases. Sola Scriptura teaches us that it is Scripture alone that is the source of our faith and practice. It is Scripture alone <coughs> that has the authority to, uh, to tell us what it is that we are to believe and what it is that we are to do. Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solus Christus. Those are grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And these give us the content of that gospel, the content of the gospel proclaimed in the pages of, of Scripture. And they teach us that, that salvation is a gift of God's grace, purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and received by faith alone. The fifth and final pillar is soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And it is this statement that, that teaches us the goal of our salvation. Through this statement, we learn that we have been saved to and for the glory of God. It is this final sola that will be our focus this morning. And we will see it here in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So let us read it together. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is the very word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, 
what is good and acceptable and perfect. That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray for His blessing upon the preaching of His Word here this morning. Father God, we come before You this morning humbly asking for Your blessing. We recognize that Your Gospel is the imperishable seed by which we have been born again. And we ask now that it would be that pure spiritual milk by which we might grow up in our salvation. Father, nourish us here this morning by Your truth. Sanctify us by Your truth. Equip us by Your truth. That we might be thoroughly prepared for every good work that You have prepared in advance that we might walk in them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We spent the last three weeks looking at Romans 3, Romans 4, and and Romans 5. And in those three chapters, we have seen the, the doctrines of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, clearly set forth. In those chapters, Paul shows us in clear and unambiguous terms that salvation is the work of God. It is God who saves sinners. It is God who justifies the ungodly. God does not merely offer us a helping hand. He does not merely offer us the grace we need to to do the good works that will help us establish our own righteousness with Him. He doesn't simply fill up the little that we are lacking, but rather He comes to the rescue of those who are dead in their sins. He comes to the rescues of those who are helpless before Him, those who cannot justify themselves because they cannot in their own strength keep the law. And so God comes and He saves sinners. He he saves us in Christ by grace. Our part is merely to receive the gift that He offers. Our part is merely to to humble ourselves and believe. Our part is merely to, to receive the benefits of what Christ has done for us. What we could not possibly have done for ourselves. This is the the essence and the heart of the Gospel. God saves sinners. God saves those who were once His enemies and He reconciles them to Himself. God makes those who were far off His own children and heirs of His kingdom and He seats them to feast at His table. This is the Gospel. But when some hear this gospel, when some hear the gospel of God's grace, when they, when they hear that, that we are saved apart from our own works, that, that, that we contribute nothing to the process, their mind immediately begins to click and they think, well, that means I'm free to do whatever I want. That means I'm, I'm free to sin with impunity after all. If it's, if it's not about my works... If it's about what what God does, what does it matter what I do? I I can do whatever I want and still receive all of the blessings. This is the way a sinful mind works, and it's actually the way that Paul anticipates his his hearers' minds to work as he raises this very question in Romans chapter 6. Turn back with me to Romans 6. At the end of Romans 3, 4, and and 5, Paul asks this question at the very beginning of chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If it's true that that God's grace superabounds wherever our sin abounds, if, if God's grace is always greater than all our sin as we love to sing, if it's true that God saves sinners, if it's true that God justifies the ungodly, well then let's be ungodly. Let's let's do our own thing. Let us let us sin freely. 
And to this, Paul answers with a resounding no. By no means. Some translators have it as God forbid or or may it never be. But however you translate it, however it's worded in your Bible, it is an emphatic denial. It is a resounding no. No, you have grossly misunderstood the Gospel. We have not been saved to do our own thing. We have not been saved to, to go our own way. The very idea is preposterous. As counterintuitive as it seems to our modern sinful minds, it was doing our own thing that got us in trouble in the first place. It was doing our own thing that made us slaves. We think that's the definition of freedom. The freedom to do what is right in our own eyes, but it is actually that very pursuit. The pursuit of our own wisdom, the pursuit of our own way that made us slaves. And Paul said it is that pursuit that was leading us straight to death. Now, if we would truly be free, if we would truly enjoy life as God created it, we must become the servants of God. It is only in slavery that we know freedom. And this is exactly what what Paul wants to teach us in the doctrine of soli deo gloria. You have not only been saved from something, you have been saved to something. And whether you can hear it or not, that is really good news. It is good that you have been saved, not to do your own thing, but to be the servant of God. So let's see how this works, because this is actually the doctrine that Paul is going to unpack for us in in Romans chapter 12. He's going to show us two things in these verses. First, he is going to, to show us that our salvation is to the glory of God. This is really what we've seen in Romans 3, 5, or 3 4, and 5. We, we've seen that all the glory for our salvation goes to God, because He is the one who does the work of salvation. He gets the credit. He gets the glory. But not only is our salvation to the glory of God, Paul is also going to show us that our salvation is for the glory of God. That we have been saved that we might glorify Him. We have been saved that we might bring glory to His name. And as I said, we see both of these truths set before us in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Look with me again at those verses. Turn back to Romans chapter 12. We begin with this idea that salvation is to the glory of God and to the glory of God alone. And we see this in the little phrase, by the mercies of God. Notice what Paul writes. He writes, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. Of God. That therefore points us back to to everything that Paul has been teaching up to this point. It, It points back to the gospel that he has been setting before the Romans. And it's a gospel that he summarizes in this little phrase by the mercies of God. In other words, by the mercies, in view of these mercies, in view of of the mercy of God that I've been setting before you for the last eleven chapters, here is how you ought to respond. The point that Paul is making is is simply this. He's he's reminding them of this gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in in Christ alone. This gospel that he has been expounding for for some 11 chapters. The idea that that salvation is the gift of God's grace. Remember, in our modern context, when people hear the language of grace, what what they hear is is that God helps people. Sometimes they even say God helps those who help themselves. But around here we at least believe that God helps those who are helpless But still, we we think that it's God helping us. We think that it it is God giving us the strength or the will or the desire to to do the good works that we must do to to earn His favor. And Paul says, no, that is not the gospel. 
The gift of God is not help. The gift of God is not more strength than you would have had on your own. The gift of God is eternal life. The gift of God is salvation. To say that salvation is by grace alone means that salvation itself is the gift. And if salvation is a gift, if it is a gift given to us by God, then of course it is a gift that must be received by faith alone. For what does Paul say in Romans chapter 4? If you work for it, it's wages and not gift. If you work for it, it is your due and not grace. It doesn't depend on works, because if it was dependent upon works, it wouldn't be grace. And so if it is by grace alone, then it is also by faith alone. Because salvation is a gift, and our part is simply to receive it. But of course, gifts have to be bought and paid for. Parents especially know that this time of year as we look forward to to Christmas. Yes, you are going to give gifts to your children, but those gifts don't come out of thin air. Those gifts have to be bought and paid for. They, They have to be procured somehow. And so how has this great gift of salvation been purchased? This is what Paul teaches us in the doctrine of Christ alone. That it is not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ that our salvation has been bought and paid for. Our salvation has been secured by Christ, by His death and His resurrection. As Paul says in Romans chapter 4, He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised again for our justification. So this is the gospel, the, the gospel of Uh, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the gospel that was proclaimed by the Apostle Paul. This is the gospel that was recovered during the Protestant Reformation. This is the gospel that we know and cherish today. A gospel that, that teaches us that salvation is the work of God. And therefore, God gets all the glory. And I want you to think just for a moment about what that means for us. What does it mean for us to say that all the glory of our salvation goes to God because He did all the work? What ought to be the fruit of such a gospel in our lives? Well, of course, there are many answers to that question. We, we could unpack all sorts of, of fruit, all sorts of ways that we could respond to that gospel. But this morning, I want to point out just two. And at this time of year, I want to begin by saying that, that our first response to this gospel ought to be thanksgiving. We ought to respond to this gospel with overwhelming thanksgiving. Paul is constantly giving thanks in his letters. And he is constantly calling on Christians to give thanks because he knows that they have much for which to give thanks. What is it that you gave thanks to God for this past week? What is it that you remembered as His blessing? No doubt there were many things that, that, you could, that you could praise God for. There were many things that you looked upon as, as God's blessing in your life. We, we often look to health as a, as a blessing of God. We thank God that, that He has either brought us through sickness or that He has protected us from sickness. We thank God for His material provision. We, we thank God for the fact that, that we don't wonder where our next meal is coming from, that He has provided abundantly for all of our needs and even most of our wants. He has taken good care of us. He has provided abundantly for us. And it is good and it is right to give thanks to God for those things. It is good and it is right to give thanks to God for the material things that He has provided for us. We would be ungrateful. We would be bratish if we did not. They are ours to enjoy and we ought to thank God for them. But I want you to hear me say this morning, even as I said at the Thanksgiving service, 
that by far our greatest blessing is not the the material things that He has so lavished on us, but by far our greatest blessing are all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. We who were far off, we who were estranged, we who were enemies of the King have been brought near. We have been pardoned and we have been reconciled. More than that, we have been called into His service. You have been called into the service of the King And more than that, you have been made an heir of His kingdom. You have been qualified for an inheritance with the saints in light. Those are blessings beyond imagination. When we say that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or imagine, this is what Paul has in mind. What's your biggest ask? What's the thing that you you would ask God to give you if you could? And Paul says, whatever it is, this surpasses it. Whatever you think you want, whatever you think would bring you satisfaction, whatever you think would make you secure, you have something that is beyond comparison in its glory. In Jesus Christ, in Him, every spiritual blessing is already yours. And this is why we see the saints throughout the New Testament facing uh, want and facing uh, persecution and, and facing uh, all sorts of trials and facing them with joy and thanksgiving. Because they know, not that these things are good, not that they somehow enjoy the suffering, but that they know that these things cannot touch the blessings that are theirs in Christ. There is no power in this world that can separate them from the love of God. Think about what Peter says in in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, who is there to harm you? Who is there to harm you if you belong to him? There There is no one who can touch you. Now they may make you suffer, but they cannot harm you because they cannot separate you from his love. And so as we come together as the people of God this morning, we come to thank God for the wonder of the blessings that are ours. The fact that salvation is His work means that our salvation is secure. If it was up to us, we would be able to fumble it at any moment. If it was up to us, then it would be tenuous at best. But because it is up to Him, because our salvation is in His hands, because we are held by His power, We are secure and we can rejoice. Think about what Jesus says. I will not lose any of those given to me by the Father. If you are in His hands, you are secure. And there is no better news. There is no better gift. And therefore, we ought to be people overflowing with thanksgiving. But not only ought we to be thankful, we ought also to be hopeful. We ought to be hopeful in this gospel. As you gathered with family this Thanksgiving, no doubt you, you gathered with some in your family, or, or at least some of your, your friends, who you long to see them come to know the Lord. You long to see God grant to them repentance unto life. You long to see them to come to, to know Jesus and to, to enjoy spiritual blessings in Him as you do. And your heart aches. You are like Paul in in Romans saying that that you you are weeping over your kinsmen. And I want you to hear this morning that because salvation is God's work, there is hope. There is hope. He can save sinners. 
Think of God speaking to Ezekiel as he stands before the valley of dry bones. Do you remember the question that was put to Ezekiel? The Lord says to him, can these bones live? What would you have said if you were standing there in Ezekiel's shoes? You're you're standing before a valley of, of dry bones. Ezekiel wisely answers, Lord, you know. You know. And what does the Lord say? Ezekiel began to preach. Preach the Word. And through the preaching of the Word, the bones that were dry and dead come together and come to life. Because God's Word is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. God is able to make alive the dead. God is able to do the impossible. And therefore, you have hope for those whom you love. You can be bold to proclaim the Gospel to them. Not because you have all the answers. Not because you can convince them. Not because you have the apologetic arguments of C.S. Lewis or Tim Keller and and you can just kind of bring them in by by your persuasive logic. You probably don't. I don't. But I can proclaim the Gospel with confidence knowing that it is God who works through the Word and God is able to overcome whatever their objections. And so I can be bold to simply set before them the truth and call them to repentance and life. But not only can I be bold, I can also be patient. I can be patient. I don't, I don't have to force them. I don't have to hit them over the head. I can simply present them with the truth as graciously as possible and trust God to give the growth. So I want you to hear me say this morning that it is good that salvation is God's work. Because the fact that salvation is God's work means that salvation is possible for those you most dearly love. And so not only should we be bold, not only should we be patient, but we should be prayerful. Asking God to work through His Word to bring them to repentance and to grant to them true faith. So this is the first thing that it means to say that that salvation is solely Deo glory. It means that salvation is God's work. And therefore, He gets the glory. But there's a second piece to this. It's it's not just looking back. It's not just saying that that salvation was accomplished by God. There's a second facet here. And the second facet is this. That salvation is not only to the glory of God, but salvation is also for the glory of God. You see, you've been saved For a purpose. Yes, God gets all the glory of your salvation, but but He saved you that you might give glory to Him. He he saved you that you might glorify Him with your life, with your words, with with your thoughts, with every inch of your existence, that you might give glory to Him by what? By, as Paul says here in Romans 12, by offering yourself to Him as a living sacrifice. This is a truth that I think is often missed in the church today. Many in the church recognize that that salvation must involve the forgiveness of sins. After all, we're we're sinners. If we're going to be in heaven with God, then our sins need to be forgiven. We we recognize that. We're Americans. We admit our errors. We we admit that we fall short. To err is human, after all. But we often see forgiveness as an end in itself. We often see this this forgiveness as as the sum total of our salvation. As as simply saying, well, okay, great. Now I don't have to suffer the consequences of my sin. Now I'm off the hook. Now now I'm free from the the threat of of hell and God's wrath. We, We see forgiveness as an end in itself. But Scripture gives us a different picture. Scripture shows us that salvation is not only from God's wrath, but that it is to God's Glory. 
Think of the Exodus in the Old Testament. That is sort of the Old Testament picture of God's work of redemption. And the people of Israel were not brought out of slavery so they could go and do their own thing. They were not brought out of slavery so that they could be their own people, following their, their, their own wisdom, doing what was right in their own eyes. That is not at all what the Exodus was about. But rather, in the Exodus, God brought a people out of slavery to make them His people. Paul says it in, in the letter to the Romans. He says, you were once slaves of sin, but now you have become slaves of God. Now you have become slaves of, of righteousness. You've been transferred from the dominion of one king into the dominion of another king. You have not been made king yourself. Salvation is from, but it is also to. The people of Israel were brought out that they might give glory to God by living as His people in the promised land. And that's exactly how it is with our salvation. We have been redeemed to serve God. We have been redeemed to offer ourselves to Him as living sacrifices. Think about what that means. It means you are a whole burnt offering. It means every part of you is to be devoted to His service. It means you give up the right to be the captain of your own ship. It means you give up the right to, to set the agenda for your life. It means you get the right to choose your own goals. You are not your own. You've been bought at a price. You are the servant of another. Your time, your resources, your energy are at His disposal. You exist to do His will. And that doesn't sound like good news to many people today. That doesn't, that doesn't sound like, like freedom Paul says, this is your spiritual worship. This is what you've been saved for. And people are like, well, I'd rather not. <laughs> That's not good news. We, we believe that the freedom to do our own thing, the, the freedom to, to serve ourselves first and foremost, that this is the greatest good. That the good life is being free to do what we want. Isn't that what you think? It's what your flesh tells you. It's what Satan tells you. In fact, it is one of Satan's most powerful lies. It's the lie that he told Adam and Eve in the garden, is it not? He comes to, to Adam and Eve in the garden and he tells them that they would be better off if they were God. They would be better off if they could rule their own world. That God was somehow depriving them. That God was somehow cutting them off from what was truly good. And if they really wanted to be free, if they really wanted to enjoy life, then they needed to be God themselves. That was Satan's lie in the garden. It's the same lie that he continues to tell today. He comes to us in, in so many ways. He, he comes to us through the music that we listen to, through the shows that we watch, through the magazines that we read, just through the conversations we, we have with one another. It's in the air that we breathe. He comes to us saying, listen, you would be better off if you were God. You would be better off if you were free to do your own thing. You would be better off if you didn't have to answer to, to anyone. It's what we believe, but it's a lie. You need to hear Scripture tell you this morning that you were not created to find joy in selfishness. Selfishness, and to the, to the great irony of, of the world, does not lead to happiness. It's not where we find the fulfillment that we, we crave. You were created to find your joy and your satisfaction not in serving yourself, but in giving yourself away in the service of God and in others. I used to tell my, my students over at 
Tennessee Christian that, that they could not simply decide that a diet of Mountain Dew and Twinkies would be good for them. You know, it's just not something they get to decide. And, and their coaches will tell them this. Listen, if you want to play on my team, if you want to be in shape for the season, you have to eat, right? You have to drink, right? You have to give up soda. You, you have to not eat so many Twinkies. It doesn't work that you get to decide what will nourish your body. Well, the same God who created your body and decided what would nourish your body decides what nourishes your soul. And He has not created you to find your joy and your satisfaction and selfishness any more than He has created your body to find its, its nourishment in Twinkies and Mountain Dew. You were created in God's image. And God is a God who delights to give Himself away in the service of others. And therefore, it only makes sense that you were created to find your delight in giving yourself away in the service of others. Selfishness does not lead where you want it to go, but it leads you to death. But rather, it is losing your life, Jesus says, that leads to finding true and abundant life. And we see this in Paul's description of God's will here, do we not? Look how, look how Paul describes God's will. He says that if you offer yourself as a, as a living sacrifice, that you will be able to discern the will of God. And then he says, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. That you will be able to discern the will of God, the good, acceptable, and perfect. Now that word acceptable is probably a little weak. It doesn't really mean what, what Paul is, is getting at here. And our, it has come to, to mean just good enough in our English language. That's why it's sometimes translated as that which is pleasing. It is good. It is pleasing. It is that which satisfied. It is that which is perfect without lack or without want. It is complete. This is the will of God. God's will for you. The will that He calls you to follow. The, the will that he, that he calls on you to submit to. It is a good will. It is a pleasing will. It is a perfect will. God calls you to find your joy in Him. He says that if you will lose your life to follow My Son, you will find true life indeed. This is the truth that our forefathers tried to capture in the first question of our catechism. You are familiar with it. You've, if you've been here for any time at all, you've, you've heard the, the question and answer before. What is man's chief end? What is man's highest purpose? What is, what is that for which he was created? What is his sunum bonum? What is that highest good? Man's chief end, our catechism says, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You were created to glorify God. But notice that, your, that God's glory, the, the glorifying of His name, is inseparably bound up with your joy. That these together are one end. They are, not, they are not competing goals. It's not like you have to decide between one and the other. But they are woven together in such a way that they cannot be separated. God's glory and your joy are one. But how do they relate to each other? Piper John Piper has explained the relationship between God's glory and our joy by saying that we glorify God by enjoying Him. That when we find our satisfaction and when we regard Him as our greatest good, when we regard Him as our deepest satisfaction, that we bring glory to His name. And that is true. 
That is true. We, we glorify God when we take deep satisfaction in Him. The way that we, we glorify a stream when we drink deeply of its pure water. We, we magnify the glory of that stream when, when we are satisfied by it. And we magnify God's glory when we are satisfied by Him. And so yes, we glorify God by enjoying Him. But I want you to hear me say this morning that it works the other way too. We enjoy God by glorifying Him. How do we find our satisfaction in God? How do we, do we come to, to rest deeply in Him, to find our, our joy in Him? That's a question that we all ask. It's a question that, that we wonder. and We sometimes think we, maybe we have to, to work up the emotions or we have to have some sort of experience. But the reality is, is that we enjoy God by glorifying Him. We find our joy in God when we submit to His good, pleasing, and perfect will. When we obey Him, we find joy in what He has created us to be. You, you know the old hymn, Trust and Obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. It's as you trust Him, it's as you obey Him that you find your joy in Him, that you find your satisfaction in Him because the will that He calls you to is His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So God has saved you. He has saved you to serve Him. He has, he has saved you to bring glory to His name, not because He needs you, not because He intends to abuse you, but He calls you into His service because He loves you. He loves you. He, he longs for your satisfaction. He, he longs for you to find your satisfaction in Him. He is more committed to your joy than you are. And because he longs for your joy because He calls you to joy. He calls you to lose your life and follow His Son, Jesus Christ. To offer yourself to Him as a living sacrifice. And that is why Paul can say at the end of Romans chapter 3 that this gospel of grace does not undermine the law, but establish it. You see, there are some who think, as I said, that this gospel of grace through faith in, in Christ, that, that such a gospel can lead only to debauchery, that such a gospel can lead only to, to lawlessness. They fear that if people don't have to be good, they won't. <laughs> that that if, if sin is an option, they will take it. But such thinking is based on the false assumption that sin is better than obedience. And that is a lie. Sin is a poison that does not satisfy. Obedience is the milk and honey of the promised land. The book of Judges shows us a, a world where every man does what is right in his own eyes. And that sounds like utopia to modern ears. Every man free to do what he wants. Every man free to do what is right in his own eyes. But if you read the book of Judges, you will find that leads not to heaven, but to hell. On the other hand, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Lose your life to follow me. And to many today, that sounds like hell. But Jesus says, no, this is, what, this is where heaven is found. This is where joy is found. Lose your life. Follow me and you will find life abundant. And that is why we regard this call to devote our lives as living sacrifices to the glory of God a call that sounds strange in the ears of modern men, but nevertheless a call that is true gospel, a call that is truly good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together.
Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness. We rejoice in your call. Forgive us for regarding it as a call to slavery, Father. Open our eyes to see the wonder and the truth of your gospel that we might know that it is in slavery to you that we are truly free. May we give you all the glory for our salvation. And may we give our lives to the praise of your glory as living sacrifices day by day until that day when you bring to completion the good work that you have begun. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen.